Good morning, all of you. My name is Henry Cha. Um, the only reason why I told you that is because I know a lot of you don't know me. I am from a, uh, I come from a little town called Paradise in Northern California, up there in the mountains. So I guess I could tell you this morning, in all honesty, that I came all the way down from Paradise <laughs> to be with you here this morning. How's that for an icebreaker? <laughs> There's so much I want to share with you this morning, but there won't be enough time. I can be here all day talking to you about the sanctuary. As you know, it's the stuff that make us who we are. How many of you believe that? The sanctuary is what defines us as a people. And the moment we marginalize that, the moment we compromise on that, we have just lost our reason for being. So how many of you are prepared for a hardcore Bible study this morning? Wonderful. The Adventist theology of the sanctuary. I guarantee you that what you will be hearing this morning is not the same thing you heard 30 years ago or maybe 10 years ago. This is a deeper, broader, fresher look at the sanctuary doctrine. I took an interest in this message a long time ago, but it's only been two or three years ago that I really, really understood what it meant. And I'm so privileged this morning to be here to be your speaker. It's a wonderful privilege, and I thank the, the staff at Army for inviting me to be one of the presenters this morning. I'd like to begin our study by quoting volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 520. Here she says, we are in the great day of what? The great day of atonement and the sacred work of Christ for the people of God that is going on at the present time in the heavenly sanctuary should be our, what? Constant study. What does constant mean? On and off, once in a while. And again, from volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 575, the great plan of redemption as revealed in the closing work of these last days should receive what? Close examination. The scenes connected with the sanctuary above should make such an impression upon the minds and hearts of all that they may be able to impress others. If you want to impress others, it has nothing to do with how you dress. If you want to impress others, what should you share with them? The sanctuary. All need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the atonement, which is going on in the sanctuary above. When this grand truth is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God, and their efforts will be a failure. Is that what it says? Their efforts will be successful. What is the secret of a successful evangelistic effort? The sanctuary. You want to impress others, point people to where Jesus is right now, in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. You can't, you can't be wrong if you do that. 
What is the reason why we need to study the sanctuary? Is the sanctuary something optional? You know, I hear a lot of people saying, I don't need to study the sanctuary. As long as I am good and I do not do anything bad, I don't need to study the sanctuary. Have you heard people say that? The study of the sanctuary is not optional. Let me share with you at least seven reasons why we need to get into the sanctuary. The sacred work of Christ at the present time must be our constant study. It must receive close examination, as Alan G. White said. And we need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of atonement going on in the heavenly sanctuary. And you may be familiar with this next statement from Great Controversy 488, where she says the subject of the sanctuary must be what now? Clearly understood by the people of God. Otherwise, what does she say? Who remembers that statement? Otherwise, it would be impossible for them to exercise the faith that is essential at this time or to occupy the position God designs them to fill. Can you imagine that? If we don't understand the sanctuary, if we are not grounded in the sanctuary service message, it will be impossible to exercise what? What? The faith that is essential at this time. Not the faith that was essential in the time of Martin Luther, or even in the time of John, but the, the faith that is needed at this time. That's a whole different ball game. Let me give you seven reasons why we need to study the sanctuary. Here's number one. The sanctuary is both the foundation and central pillar of our faith. Where am I getting that? Great Controversy 409. The scripture which above all others had been both the foundation and the central pillar of the Advent faith was the declaration unto 2,300 days. Then what? then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. What is the central pillar and foundation of our faith? The message of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. Do you know what that means? The message of the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven has more to do than just the cleansing of furnitures, the altars. It has to do more with the cleansing of God's people. Your cleansing and my cleansing. That is why we should take an interest in this. Here's the next reason. The sanctuary service message is present truth. It is present truth. Early writings, page 63, says this. There are many precious truths contained in the word of God, but it is present truth that the flock needs now. What do we need now? Present truth. I have seen the danger of the messengers running off from the important points of present truth to dwell upon subjects that are not calculated to unite the flock and sanctify the soul. Satan will here take every possible advantage to endure the cause. But such subjects as the sanctuary 
in connection with the 2,300 days, the commandments of God and the fate of Jesus are perfectly calculated to explain the past Advent movement and show what our present position is, establish the faith of the doubting, and give certainty to the glorious future. These I have frequently, these I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. If you want to know what present truth is, it's right there. The sanctuary in connection with the 2,300 days and the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus is shorthand for the third angel's message. So this is the stuff that makes us who we are. You take away these, we have no more reason for being. No reason to be a separate denomination. So that's the stuff that we are going to share this morning is the stuff that makes us who we are. I hope you're excited. It's about time. The third reason, to understand the work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. We studied the mosaic sanctuary and the services that, that were conducted there so we can get a better handle on what Jesus is doing right now for us in the heavenly sanctuary. So he doesn't look too distant. Know what I mean? When we look at the type, we understand the anti-type. That's the whole point of going back to Leviticus, the book of Daniel, and, and the other books in the Old Testament to talk about the sanctuary. So we can see Jesus more clearly. So we can have a better relationship with him. How does that sound? It's not a dead message. It's a message that brings Jesus close to us in a way that he can never be. Reason number, before that, early writings to 52. Through the sacrifices and offerings brought to the earthly sanctuary, the children of Israel were to lay hold of, a, of the merits of a Savior to come. And in the wisdom of God, the particulars of this work were given us that we might, by looking to them, understand the work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. How much do you understand of the typical sanctuary right now? I hope you know enough, because I'm not going to go back, you know, and reinvent the wheel, so to speak. I'm going to assume that most of you here, if not all, have enough foundation for the stuff that we are going to share this morning, because what we are going over this morning is advanced theology. It's sanctuary 401, <laughs> not sanctuary 101. The earthly sanctuary and the services typify the heavenly sanctuary and the work of Christ therein. This point is stressed, is so important that it is stressed by Paul four times in the book of Hebrews, each time focusing on a specific aspect of the sanctuary. For example, in Hebrews 9, verse 9, the tabernacle and its services, as Paul said, were a figure for the time then present. He was talking about the services. In Hebrews 8, verse 5, the priesthood now was an example and shadow of heavenly things. Hebrews 10, verse 1, the sacrificial system was a shadow of good things to come. This is a reference to Jesus coming down here in our humanity. Sacrifices and offerings you did not delight in, but a body you have prepared for me. 
the type anti-type relationship between the earthly and the sanctuary in heaven makes it possible for us to understand the work of Jesus in heaven and sanctuary. Reason number four, the sanctuary is brought out in the prophecies for the time of the end. In fact, I'm going to submit to you this morning that the sanctuary service is the key that unlocks the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. I use the sanctuary to interpret prophecy, the seven churches, the seven seals, seven trumpets, the final conflict, all the way into the end. It's the key that you need to unlock the mysteries of Daniel and Revelation. In Life Sketches 278, here's what Ellen White says. In his word, God has revealed saving truths. As a people, we should be earnest students of prophecy. We should not rest until we become intelligent in regard to the subject of the sanctuary, which is brought out where? In the visions of Daniel and John. So it is not possible to understand Daniel and Revelation unless we have a good grip on the sanctuary, the dual ministration, the difference in the benefits. Reason number five, the sanctuary serves as the framework upon which the gospel message for the time of the end, as the everlasting gospel, can be rightly understood. And here's a quote from Science of the Times, January 13, 1898. The earthly temple is no more. Its mysterious veil has been rent asunder. Its sacred vessels have been demolished. And the Jewish people are scattered to every part of the world. But the judgments that fell on that nation are a symbol of those who will fall, fall on all who, like Jerusalem, know not the time of their visitation. Let no man mock the ancient Jewish economy of which Christ was the originator and the one to whom the types and shadows pointed. In these types and shadows is revealed the everlasting gospel. The first angel's message, which is a proclamation of the everlasting gospel, is based on the sanctuary service message, folks. So we need a sanctuary to understand what the first angel's message is all about, and the second, and the third. Reason number six, its understanding is needed to exercise the faith that is essential at this time. If I ask you, what is the faith that we need right now, at this time? How is this different from the faith you needed in the time of Luther? Is there a difference? What is the faith that is essential at this time? It is the faith of Jesus, folks. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. More on this later on. I hope you stay. The faith of Jesus is a much bigger faith. Do you know what the faith of Jesus is? I don't have the reference right now, but I can tell you to believe that Jesus can completely, entirely, and fully save us from sin is the faith of Jesus. In other words, total victory over sin. Living a sinless life in sinful flesh, believing that that can happen is the faith of Jesus. How many of you believe 
that Jesus is going to put an end to sin in our lives before he comes. Not when he comes, but before Jesus leaves the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. How many of you believe that? That is the faith of Jesus. This was not the faith in the time of Martin Luther. In the time of Martin Luther, you only needed faith to be forgiven, to be righteous by faith. The faith of Jesus is so much bigger than that, and we cannot exercise that faith unless we understand the work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. So here's great controversy for 88. The subject of the sanctuary and the, and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. All need a knowledge for themselves. Your pastor can't understand it for you. You have to know it for yourself. A knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. Who are we talking about here? Jesus as our compassionate and merciful high priest. His work in the sanctuary. Otherwise, she says, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith which is essential at this time or to occupy the position God wants them to fill. And reason number seven, the sanctuary service will soon be over. How many of you, how many of you believe this? We need to understand and appreciate it while we can still derive benefit from it. What happens when Jesus leaves the heavenly sanctuary? It's all over. It's going to be all over. So, if we want to derive benefit from that work, we have to derive it before he leaves the sanctuary. But we can't derive benefit if we don't follow him there by faith. If we don't know the way to the heavenly sanctuary, we get no benefit. That's what Adam G. White says in Great Controversy 430, the Jews who could not follow Jesus by faith in the sanctuary, could not derive benefit, could not receive pardon for their sins. Early writings 48, when Jesus leaves the sanctuary, then those who are holy and righteous will be holy and righteous still. For their sins will then be blotted out, and they will be sealed with the seal of God, with the seal of the living God. But those that are unjust and filthy will be unjust and filthy still. For then there will be no priest in the sanctuary to offer their sacrifices, their confessions, and their prayers before the Father's throne. Therefore, what is done to rescue souls from the coming storm of wrath must be done before Jesus leaves the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. This is a uh, fearful statement. I don't know if you you grasp the urgency of that statement. Before he leaves the heavenly sanctuary, that's all that matters. After that, it's all over. So let's begin. That was just introduction, by the way. Let's begin. I've taken the liberty to do a question-and-answer type of study this morning. I don't usually do it because I thought this might be more interesting, more interactive. Here's the first question. What two apartments comprise the earthly sanctuary? This should be easy now. Holy and most holy place. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Let's all read together. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. For context. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Here, Paul explains the uh, layout of the sanctuary, the earthly sanctuary. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, and the table, and the shewbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called what? The holiest of all, which had a golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Here's a little illustration of that. Holy place where you have the candlestick, the uh, altar of incense, and the table of shewbread. And after that, you have the most holy place. How many of you can relate with this right now? This is the easy part of our talk. Nothing involved here. The most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant. What was inside the Ark, by the way? The Rod of Aaron, the manna and the Ten Commandments. That's right. Paul does not talk about the courtyard, but here it is. You have the altar of burnt offering, the labor, and this is as far as the people could go. They would bring their sin offerings, as you know, and offer them when they were convicted and wanted to confess a particular sin. Question number two. What two services were conducted in the sanctuary throughout the year? The daily service and the day of atonement service. This much we know, don't we? You can also read that in verses 6 and 7 of Hebrews chapter 9. So let's read that together. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always, how often? Always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. What did Paul call the daily service? The service of God. That's an interesting expression. That's the same Greek word we read in verse 1. Then verily the first covenant also had ordinances of a divine service. The divine service in verse 1 is the same service of God in verse 6. Latreia in the Greek, which simply means service of God. Verse 7, But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Why did high priest go alone in the most holy place on the Day of Atonement? According to Paul, to offer sacrifices for what now? For the errors of the people. Do you know what he meant by that? I'm sorry? Sins of ignorance? Is that what your Bible says? It's more than that, folks, but let's not go ahead of ourselves here. I will get into that in much detail as we progress here. So we have the daily service where the priests went always or continually. The Greek word is diapantos, meaning nonstop, uninterrupted, continuous. 
the priests always continuously went into the first tabernacle or the holy place accomplishing the service of God. And you have the Day of Atonement where the priest went alone in the second apartment once every year with the blood which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The word errors here, this is a very important word. And you dare not miss what Paul really meant by that. So we will go deep into that as we make progress in our presentation here. Next question, question number three. Why did Paul call the day the service the service of God? Why do you think he called it that? Did God tell Moses to build a sanctuary so people can come and serve him? Is that what the point is? That he could dwell among them. Why did Paul call this now the service of God? Who is serving who? Who do you think? God is serving us. That's the whole point of the sanctuary. The sanctuary service was established by God primarily not to benefit himself, but to benefit a congregation of sinners and rebels, folks. In the sanctuary, God would condescend and stoop low in order to, de to deal with the sins of the people. In the sanctuary service, God is condescending. There's a work of condescension going on. Because of us, we have turned the dwelling place of God into a glorified dumpster for sin, folks. I don't understand how a perfect, holy, sin-hating God would allow sin coming from you and I to be transferred there so we will not perish in our sins. Why does he do that? Because his love for us is stronger than sin. His love for us is stronger than death, in fact. Through the sanctuary service, a holy God would humble himself to clean his people of their sins and of their defilement. How many of you are touched by that? Isaiah, 6, Isaiah 43 verse 24 brings this all out so clearly. We have made God to serve us with our sins, and we have wearied or burdened him with our iniquities. So now do we understand why the sanctuary service is the service of God? The service of God on account of our sins. Hebrews 8 verse 5, the priest served. It's the service of God. The priest served unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. It's the service of God. Matthew 20 verse 28, he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many people. So the first thing we understand about the sanctuary service is this. It is the service of God for us. God is serving us in love. If that does not break your heart, nothing else will. What kind of service is this? What does this service boil down to? What is the service of God all about? It is God bearing our sins. God taking our sins away from us. 
transferring into the sanctuary so that we are no more responsible for them. Amen? And who is responsible for them now? As soon as the sin is transferred to the sanctuary, you are not to worry about those sins anymore. Why? Because God bears them. Numbers 18 verse 1 says, And the Lord said unto Aaron, Thou and thy sons and thy father's house with thee shall bear the iniquity of the sanctuary. And thou and thy sons with thee shall bear the iniquity of your priesthood. It all boils down to sin bearing. Why does God do that? He does not want us to perish in our sins. He would rather bear them, he would rather have his sanctuary be defiled by sin than us perishing in them. Aren't you glad? Aren't you thankful for that? Daniel 8, 14 says, Unto 2,300 years, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. What do you think the 2,300 years is all about? The 2,300 years is 2,300 years of sin-bearing, folks. How do I know that? How do I know that the 2,300 years of Daniel 8.14 are long years that God bears sin? I don't know if you know this, but we use the year-day principle, don't we? To translate 2,300 mornings and evenings to 2,300 years? Well, let me tell you this right now. The year-day principle that we like to use so much is based on the idea of sin-bearing. I don't know if you realize that. The verses that we use to defend the idea of one day to a year principle is really based on sin-bearing. Let me give you the evidence right now. Numbers 14.34 is one of the verses we use. Each day for a year shall you what? Bear your iniquities. Ezekiel 4, verses 4 to 6 is the other verse we use. But notice how the year-day principle is tied up with the idea of sin-bearing. 390 days. This was when Ezekiel was told to lie down on his left hand, on the left side, on his right side for a certain number of days. For what? To bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Ezekiel 4 verse 5 says, 390 days, so shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Ezekiel 4 verse 6, you shall bear the iniquity of Judah 40 days each day for a year. So what do you think then is the 2,300 days prophecy all about? It is 300 years it is 2,300 years of sin-bearing. God has been in the business of sin-bearing for a long time now. It's not fair, folks. Do you know that the work of sin-bearing is painful? That it pains God to do this? It burdens Him. It wearies Him. It's a wearisome business, but He does it anyway. We have to make it stop. Isn't that right? Daniel 8.14 tells us that God will not always be in the business of sin-bearing. When the sanctuary is cleansed, then what? There will be no more mechanics. No more way 
for our sins to be transferred to the heavenly sanctuary to defile it. It's all over. God will not always be in the business of bearing our sins, folks. Did I already read this before? I think I did. So I won't read it again. Early Writings 48 says, everything that we need to derive benefit from the sanctuary must be derived before he leaves the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. After that, God will bear sins no longer. Next question. Question number four. When speaking of the daily service, why did Paul say that the priests always... In other words, continuously go into the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary. Why did it need to be continuous, uninterrupted? Because we sin continuously, thank you. Because we need continuous cover. Let's go over the, uh, the rituals that comprise the daily service so to speak. And let's find out what kind of services they were. The morning and evening sacrifice. How many of you know about the morning and the evening sacrifice? Some of you are raising your hands. That's good. This was a continuous service. Now this is what, this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. The Hebrew word is tamid. A lamb was offered in the morning. It was allowed to burn all day long. And before it was cons- completely consumed, another sacrifice was offered at night. And this sacrifice was burned piece by piece to make it last until the following morning. And this was a daily process, morning and evening. What was the point of all this? The rabbis thought that the morning sacrifice was to cover the sins of the entire camp that were committed the night before, unconditionally, folks. And the evening sacrifice was offered to cover the sins that were committed throughout the camp all day long. Before anyone came with a sin offering, with an individual sin offering, the morning sacrifice covered the entire camp. What does that tell you about God's unconditional love right there? He does not wait for you to bring your sin offering. He covers you unconditionally. This is called forensic justification in theology, but so much for that. The lighting of the candlesticks caused the lamps to burn continually. Tamid again in the Hebrew. When the morning sacrifice was offered, a priest went into the first apartment and made sure there was light on the candlesticks. The ritual of the incense. When Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it for a perpetual or continual or tamid again. Incense before the Lord throughout your generations. So you can see that the daily service, every component of the daily service was a continuous, uninterrupted, non-stop process. Why is that again? Because the camp needed cover. The table of the shewbread. And thou shalt set upon the table of shewbread before me always, or continually again, or tamid. The most important part of the daily service was the offering of the sin offerings. 
This too was a continuous process. All day long, people brought in sin offerings. All kinds of people, from priests, from the elders, the leaders, the princes, the individuals, they all came with their sin offerings. And this was a continuous process. Blood continuously flowed into the sanctuary. Day by day, year after year. I'm going to skip reading that. Leviticus chapter 4, 20, 28 to 29 talks about a sin offering for the individual. This is from Ellen White. The most important part of the daily ministration was the service performed in behalf of individuals. The repentant sinner brought his sin offering to the door of the tabernacle and placing his hand upon the victim's head, confessed his sins, thus in figure transferring them from himself to the penitent sorry, to the innocent sacrifice. By his own hand, the animal was then slain, and the blood was carried by the priest into the, into the holy place and sprinkled before the veil, behind which was the ark containing the law that had the sinner, the law that the sinner had transgressed. By this ceremony, the sin was, through the blood, transferred in figure to the sanctuary. So every day, we see sin continuously being transferred to the sanctuary. What does, this, what does this say about the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary then? Is it correct to say that Jesus finished all at the cross and then sat down at the right hand of God and is now vacationing there and is just having a good time? Just like the typical service, folks, the work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary is a continuous, non-stop, uninterrupted round of ministration. Collected Message Book 1, 343 says, Christ as high priest within the veil so immortalized Calvary that though he liveth unto God, he dieth, what? He dies continually to sin, and thus, if any man sin, he has an advocate with the Father. The work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is what now? A work of dying continually to sin. Have you grappled with that thought before? Does not the Bible say Jesus was offered once? He suffered once for our sins. How can Ellen White say that Jesus dies continually to sin? Let's think for a moment and see what that thought might mean and how that will impact us once we understand it. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, it says, And I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Tell me, when did John write this passage? 31 AD? When was the book of Revelation written? 95 AD. The book of Revelation was written by John in the Isle of Patmos in 95 AD. In Revelation 4, verse 1, John is told to come up hither, and I will show thee things that will come hereafter. And the first thing he sees is the throne of God with a rainbow around it 
and the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And in chapter 5, he sees a lamb that was slain. He sees Jesus doing his work of intercession. But instead of seeing a high, high, a high priest, what does John see? A lamb that was slain. Why is that? 64 years after the cross. Because the work of Christ in interceding for us is the process of dying continuously to sin, folks. Tell me if that, that's not a painful work. As long as we are sinning, the pain of Calvary will linger in the heart and mind of Jesus. That breaks my heart. In, John, in, in Revelation 13, verse 8, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, as long as there is sin, Jesus must present himself before the Father as the atoning sacrifice. That is painful. He must relive the pain and the agony of Calvary each time we sin. Do you understand what that means? It's a continuous process. Then what about the cross then? Did not Jesus suffer at Calvary once and that was it? What is Calvary? What is the cross? Education, page 263. How many of you have read this passage before? This is a really, really powerful statement. Those who think of the result of hastening or hindering the gospel think of it in relation to themselves and to the world. Few think of its relation to God. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our Creator. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but that suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. What did she say? It did not begin or end here on earth. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses. What kind of senses do we have? I hope you're not offended by that. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from, the, from its very inception, sin has brought to the heart of God. Every departure from right, every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings grief and pain, for that matter, to him. As Jesus is standing before the Father right now, he is in pain and in agony for our sins. As he bears our sins, the same pain that he had when he was down here being crucified is still with him. It hasn't abated, folks. How many of you understand that concept? How many of you are having a hard time wrapping your minds around that? Yes. It is true, though. Great Controversy 416. The intercession, I'm sorry, his intercession is that of a pierced and broken body, a, of a spotless life. The wounded hands, the pierced side, the marred feet plead for fallen man whose redemption was purchased at such infinite cost. Are you beginning to see this? When Jesus says, Father, my blood, my blood, the Father does not just see the blood, he feels the pain as well. Do you understand what that concept means? This is the service of God for us. It's got to stop, folks. I don't know about you, but we need to bring that to a stop. 
and the sooner the better. So when you read in Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. What does that mean? He ever liveth to make intercession is continuously dying to sin. Ever living to make intercession, ever dying for sin. Go figure. <laughs> what does that mean? All I know is it's a very painful process. We can't cherish sin while knowing that Jesus is suffering for us, even right now, as our high priest in the sanctuary in heaven. I hope you see this, folks. I hope you take this with you. Jesus Christ is represented as continually standing at the altar, momentarily offering up a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He is a minister of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Here again, Ellen G. White is right on the ball by saying that Jesus is continually doing this work, just like in the type folks. Why does he do that? Why does he have to continually intercede for us with all the pain included there? Here's the reason why. The atoning sacrifice through a mediator is essential because of what? Because of the constant commission of sin. This is the reason why the service in heaven needs to be what now? Uninterrupted. It has to be constant. Why? We need constant cover. Jesus is officiating in the presence of God, offering up his shed blood as it had been slain, as it had, as it had been a lamb slain. Jesus presents the oblation offered for every offense and every shortcoming of the sinner. How many offenses? Every offense, every shortcoming of the sinner. Here's another one. Selected message, book 1343. Christ, our mediator, and the Holy Spirit are constantly interceding in man's behalf. But the Spirit pleads not for us as does Christ, who presents his blood shed from the foundation of the world. Do you understand now why Paul said, the priests always went into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. Are you beginning to understand more clearly now what the sanctuary service is all about? Amen? What would happen if there is a break in this service? For just one moment, folks. What would happen? And we are still sinning. A momentary break in this continuous ministration would be fatal to us, folks. Would be fatal. Do you know why the plagues are not falling right now in our heads? Because Jesus is still pleading in the sanctuary. Father, my blood, my blood. Because not all of us are sealed. The four angels are holding the four winds of strife, as you know, in Revelation 7. Because Jesus is still pleading before the Father. Continuous ministration in the heavenly sanctuary means what now? Continuous cover for a rebellious world. But only until 
the sanctuary is cleansed. Let me make that clear. <laughs> when the sanctuary is cleansed, Jesus steps out from between the Father and guilty man, and all hell will break loose, folks. You know what I mean by that, don't you? Yes, wonderful. Early Writings 2.80 says, It was impossible for the plagues to be poured out while Jesus officiated in the sanctuary. And mind you, this is a painful process again. But as his work there is finished and his intercession closes, then what? There is nothing to stay the wrath of God, and it breaks with fury upon the shelterless head of the guilty sinner who has slighted salvation and hated reproof. Next question, question number five. What does this continuous service of God in the sanctuary give the worshipers therein in exchange for their sins? And how is this received? So what benefit do we, do we derive from this continuous round of ministration? Aside from the fact that he bears our sins. That's just a small part of it. What other benefits do we get from this continuous round of ministration? Who knows? Sanctification, yeah. What else? Power, empowerment not to sin, yes. Listen, folks. Taking our sins and placing it in the sanctuary is just half of the equation. It gets even better. The other half is God shares his perfection with us. It's called justification by faith. Don't you realize that the Christian experience of justification by faith is a benefit of the sanctuary service? Don't you realize, folks, that the goal of the sanctuary service is to bring God's perfection to us? No less than that. The goal of the sanctuary service is not just to take away our sin and leave us, and leave us in a vacuum, but to bring God's perfection to the worshipers. This is brought out in the book of Hebrews at least three times by Paul. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, let's read that together. I love the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 7, verse 11 says, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? What is Paul saying here? What he's saying is the reason why the priesthood was established was for perfection to be provided for the worshipers. Except the human priests could not do it. Why? For they were human. They were sinful themselves. But what the human priests could not do, Jesus does as priest in the order of Melchizedek. He brings God's perfection to us. He takes away the sin first, and then he covers us with his perfection. Isn't that, isn't that lovely? Justification by faith is taught in the sanctuary. Now talking about the service we talked about the priesthood, and now Paul talks about the service, which is defined here as the offering of gifts and sacrifices. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9, what does Paul say now about the service in the sanctuary? 
which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service, what? Perfect as pertaining to the conscience. What does Paul, what does Paul say here now? What he's saying is, the sanctuary service was established. The offering of gifts and, gifts and sacrifices was established to make the worshipers perfect. Except now, the earthly services could not do it. What does it? The better service, the one that's being done in the heavenly sanctuary, is what accomplishes it. Amen? But listen, what kind of perfection are we talking about here? Perfect as pertaining to the outward behavior? Is that what Paul is saying? No, it's more than that. It's perfect as pertaining to the conscience, the mind, folks, the thoughts and the feelings, the character. That's what Paul is talking about here. This is the goal of the work Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary as, how, as our high priest. How many of you are excited? Yes. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we talked about the priesthood, we talked about the services, now we will talk about a sacrificial system. Why was the sacrificial system invented or established by God? Um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. For, having, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of things can never be those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually. There you go again, the word continually. Make the commerce thereunto what? Perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged, or once perfected, in other words, should have no more conscience of sin. I am blown away by this. I don't know about you. Why was a body prepared for Jesus? Hebrews 10 verse 5. To do what the animal sacrifices could not do. And what is it? To make the worshippers perfect as pertaining to the conscience so that there is no more consciousness, no more memory of sin, folks. How many of you can relate with that? No more memory of sin. This is... Another, word, another way of saying the sins will be blotted out. When sins are blotted out, you will no longer be able to remember them. This is the benefit of the sanctuary service. To take away the sin and in exchange provide God's perfection to us. The word perfect here is the Hebrew word teleo, which means to make perfect. Complete, to carry through completely, to accomplish, to finish, to bring to an end. That's the same word you find in Matthew 5, 48. Be ye therefore, what? Perfect. As your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. What is God requiring from us? Perfection. Is that asking too much? Not if you think of the sanctuary. If you think of that in terms of what we can do, it's humanly impossible. But once we understand what a sanctuary service is all about, you begin to understand that what God requires, He Himself provides. 
That's a powerful thought, folks. So how many of you are excited about our message, the sanctuary? Do you not know that this is what you signed up for when you joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church? You signed up for this. Are you going to quit? (laughs) What God requires, he himself provides. And how is this done? Through a work of atonement in the sanctuary. The sanctuary service is not about us. It's about Jesus, who makes continuous intercession in the sanctuary. He brought his blood in Hebrews 9, verse 12, so he can have something to offer for our sins. And I'm just blown away by the benefits that I derive from that work. I don't know about you. This benefit, the benefit we get from the sanctuary, is courtesy of the work of Christ in the Hamlet Sanctuary. I hope you're thankful for that. The least we can do is say what now? Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you do for us. Two things are needed for this work of atonement. How many of you have read part of Leviticus? I'm not going to read it here because it's going to take too long. And I'm also working under the assumption that you've already already at least read Leviticus chapter 4 ten times and understand what it's all about. In Leviticus chapter 4, you have the law of the sin offerings, right? For the priests, for the elders, for the rulers, and for the individuals. In Leviticus chapter 4, verses 27 to 35, there you have the law of the sin offerings for the individual. Two things were needed. The death of a sacrifice... But not only that, it wasn't enough for the lamb to be slain or for the goat to be be slain in the case of the individual. What else was needed? What else was needed aside from 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 the slaying of the animal? The priest had to take the blood, bring it into the holy place of the sanctuary, and then sprinkle it before the veil. Isn't that right? And on the altar of incense. This was in the case of the congregation. In the case of the individual, the blood of the sacrifice was ministered by the priest where? In the courtyard, the blood was sprinkled on the horns of the altar of incense. In any case, that was how the sin was transferred to the sanctuary. Two things were needed. The death of the sacrifice and the ministration of a priest. Verse 35 says, if you turn with me to Leviticus 4.35... After these were done, then what happened? Leviticus chapter 4, verse 35. To save time, we will just read that verse. Turn with me here to Leviticus chapter 4, verse 35 in your Bibles, if you can, please. The last part of that verse says what? And the priest shall make an atonement for the sin that he had committed, and it shall be forgiven him. It shall be forgiven him. At what point was forgiveness offered? At what point was the sin taken away and transferred to the sanctuary and the sin was forgiven? Was it after the sin, after the animal was killed? Or after the priest sprinkled the blood? Yes, after the priest sprinkled the blood. Now why is this very important? Why is this thought very important? 
How many of you have heard a saying that it's all done at the cross? Yes? It just started. The cross is not the end of it. The work of atonement is a dual process. You need the death of a sacrifice and you need a priest. Jesus had to bring his blood in the sanctuary and minister there so that sins can be forgiven. Does that make sense? Both are needed. Now let me ask you a question as I continue here. Um, Let me ask you a question. Which part of the sanctuary service brought perfection to the worshipers, do you think? Remember there were two services? The daily service and the yearly service? Which of these two services brought perfection to the worshipers? Who says daily? Who says yearly? Okay, a lot of you are raising your hands. How about both? Folks, both the daily service and the yearly service brings God's perfection to the worshipers. But you need to be able to tell the difference. This is where it gets a little tricky now. This is where the hardcore stuff comes in. The question is how does perfection, let me rephrase that, how is perfection brought to the worshipers through the daily service? Leviticus 4.35, and the priest shall make an atonement for him and it shall be forgiven him. Is there perfection in forgiveness? How do we know that? How do we know there is perfection in forgiveness? It's always a two-way exchange. The taking away of sin and forgiveness is just one half of the equation. The other half is God shares his righteousness with us. The work in the earthly sanctuary to forgive sin prefigured the greater work that Jesus would accomplish for us in the heavenly sanctuary. All right? So when you read in 1 John verse 9, for example, if we forgive, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is forgiveness and there is cleansing. In that work of cleansing, folks, Perfection is included. What kind of perfection am I talking about? The daily service is righteousness by faith, which is the taking away of the sin in forgiveness and being accounted perfect in Christ. And it is a benefit of the sanctuary service. The daily service which is forgiveness of sin and justification by faith is being perfect, where? In Christ. This is the Lutheran gospel. Martin Luther preached this. And where was Jesus when Martin Luther was preaching righteousness by faith? In the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary, doing his daily service ministration. Righteousness by faith is a benefit of what now? The daily service. When John wrote 1 John verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a reference to the daily service being conducted by Jesus in the first apartment 
of the heavenly sanctuary. What is the result? Forgiveness, just like in the type, but more than that, righteousness by faith. What does that mean? What does that mean? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. We are accepted in the beloved. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.28, that he might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. This is daily service benefit. So now, do you see that there is perfection even in the daily service, folks? But where is the perfection? Where is the perfection? Not in you, not in me. Where is it? In Christ. In Jesus. This is why I'm telling you perfection is provided as a benefit, not only in the yearly service, but even in the daily service. Colossians 2.10, you are complete in him. Colossians 4, verse 12, that you may stand perfect and complete. There you go, Paul is stacking these two words now. In all the will of God. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, those of us who derive benefit from the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary are able to follow him there and are standing on Mount Zion and are a member of the church of the firstborn who are made up of just men made perfect. Just men made what? Perfect. Perfect in who? Christ Jesus. You are sitting right now in heavenly places. God looks at you as if you are there, and you are perfect in Christ Jesus. You don't look too excited. <laughs> if I were preaching this in, in a, an American-African congregation, you would all be jumping up and down right now. <laughs> Isn't that right? <laughs> no offense to anyone. <laughs> Aren't you glad that you're all perfect in Christ Jesus? Why are we so down and out, so guilt-ridden? How can you think like that when Jesus covers us with his perfection right now? If our sins are forgiven, folks. I didn't say blotted out. I said forgiven, remember. Forgiven. We'll have a break here in a few minutes. How long has, been do how long has Jesus been doing this work now of justifying and making people righteous by faith? For 18 centuries, this work of administration continued in the first apartment. Where? In the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary. The blood of Christ pleaded in behalf of penitent believers, secured their pardon and acceptance with the Father. In the words of Alan White, Steps to Christ, page 62. If you give yourself to him and accept him as your Savior, then what? Then sinful as your life may have been, for his sake, you are accounted what? Righteous. What's another word for righteous? Perfect. You are accounted righteous. Christ's character stands in place of your character. And what kind of character are we talking about? Defective character. Our character is defective. Christ's perfect character stands in place of our defective character. And you are accepted before God just as if you have not sinned. How many of you are praising God right now? This is justification by faith. If you die tonight, where do you go? 
Not immediately, where do you go? You go to heaven, folks. This is justification by faith. Daily service benefit. 7 BC, 907. I like this statement a lot. Through his sacrifice, human beings may reach the high ideals set before them and hear at last the words, you are complete, where? In him. Not having your own righteousness, but the righteousness that he wrought out for you. Your imperfection is no longer seen. Wow. For you are clothed with a robe of Christ's perfection. 7 BC 907. How many of you love this statement? Notice what she says. She does not say your imperfection is taken away. What does she say? It's no longer seen. It's hidden. For you are clothed with what? The robe of Christ's perfection. This is the gospel that Martin Luther preached. This is the gospel that Billy Graham preaches. This is righteousness by faith. And we all love that, don't we? Nothing wrong with this message. The blessed experience of righteousness by faith is being what now? Perfect in Christ. And this can be yours even now. Right now. Even though Jesus is in the most holy place now, he's no longer in the first apartment, don't you realize that he is still doing his daily service ministration there as well, on top of his day of atonement service? Do you not know, how many of you know, that both the daily service and the yearly service are going on right now in the most holy place? That's in Great Controversy, page 389. Jesus offers pardon from the most holy place now. So, that's good news <laughs> for us, because we're still sinning. We know we're living the time of judgment, but we are still... Imperfect. We're still defective. So Jesus offers pardon. Where now? From the most holy place of the from of the most of the heavenly sanctuary, and this is a blessed experience. Romans four six to eight says, even as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, "Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin." How many of you are blessed right now? The experience of justification by faith is a blessed experience. I don't know what you feel, but for me, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you if I did not know this, if I did not experience this, because I lived a very rough life when I was, in, when I was still Catholic. I wasn't born raised Adventist. I don't even know I am standing here in front of you. But I was not a pretty person growing up as a uh, worldly person. But because of righteousness by faith, I can stand before you whole, knowing my sins are forgiven. And I saw this in the sanctuary service. So it's a blessed experience that I would like to share with all of you. Break time. Ten minutes. Amazing, I'm right on the clock. I can't believe it. We uh, will resume in ten minutes. Shall we have a closing prayer before we take off?
Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, for helping us understand better just now the work that is going on in the heavenly sanctuary. May our hearts be warmed. May we see Jesus and the work that he's doing for us more clearly. May we fall in love with him, Lord. May we have the assurance that our sins are forgiven. And may our hearts be broken because of that. Help us, Lord, bring an end to all the suffering that he is going through right now in the heavenly sanctuary because of our sins. Have mercy on us, Lord. Do not allow us to leave this place empty. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.